everyone, don't forget to go to rebrandedsafety.com to get yourself some cool-ass merch. Get yourself sweatshirts, t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and you can support us a little bit more. And the best of it is you wouldn't even know you're supporting a health and safety channel because it just looks cool, man. Don't forget, rebrandedsafety.com. Get yourself some merch, peeps. Safe. What's up, people? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. This episode of the podcast, we're going to delve in deep with an expert into construction, design, management regulations. CDM regulations, our expert, who you know, is going to explain everything for us. Let's get into the podcast. Health and safety is almost a victim of its own success. We're in a pressured regime of health and safety regulations. A huge fire engulfs a tower block in London. Children being forced to wear goggles to play conkers at school. Worst oil field disaster, 164 dead. Rebranding Safety, the modern health and safety podcast, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent and your host, James McPherson. What's up everybody, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety does exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to challenge the perceptions of health and safety. We're here to challenge those practices of health and safety gone mad. We're here to provide you with simple, bite-sized, modern, and sometimes entertaining health and safety advice to help you save lives and save money. So in today's episode, we've got a regular. We've got Rachel Butler back on the podcast. She's in a undisclosed location with a, providing us with a great background of something that her business is building. So without further ado, without so without further ado, you don't need me to explain who Rachel is. You already know her if you've listened to the podcast. If you haven't, go and find our first podcast with Rachel. It's a great conversation. Essentially, Rachel is a big figure in the industry because she was the youngest female chartered member of IOSH. She now works for a major construction business. So, if you listen on a podcast, make sure to go and check out YouTube so you can see the amazing background of where Rachel is providing us with this conversation. Because of the unique location of this conversation, there are some signal issues. We have post-edited out as much as we can, so I apologize if it is a little bit choppy. Make sure you listen till the end of the podcast where you'll see a slight change in something quite interesting and a little bit funny. So make sure you listen till the end, guys. Without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Right, so, right, do you want to give us an introduction to our background that we've got there? Because it looks not the normal background that we have on the podcast. So, yeah. do you want to let us know where you are, what we're looking at? Yeah, sure. Apologies for the noise to those who are listening. Um, I am live on site at De Trafford Construction's first ever self-delivered project, which is St George's Gardens. Uh, we are overlooking the wonderful completed roof garden scheme with a very fabulous view of uh, the skyline of Manchester in the background. So what a unique opportunity to be able to record this podcast here. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And the weather seems to be holding out for you as well. <laughs> oh, touch wood. We're in Manchester. Yeah. 
If it starts it down halfway through podcast, I'm going to laugh. I won't. Right. So you, if you're standing up there, you, you must be a CDM expert, and that's why we're getting you on. Hmm, expert. I don't know about that, but yeah, <laughs> I, I'd like to think that we're quite knowledgeable in the subject. Enough to talk about it anyway. Um, so just to give listeners a little bit of a background, De Trafford um, are also now acting as principal contractor. Majority of the cases, we uh, we would always put principal designer out to a third party, uh, but we're also end user as well. So we get a full turnkey solution here of the whole CDM life cycle of a project. Um, and obviously, uh, my my background is predominantly construction and fit out. Um, so again, acted both as principal designer and principal contractor. Um, and I'd like to think that I've, I've uh, been throughout the whole um, change from CDM 2007 to where we are now, 2015. A lot of people are still referring to these as the new CDM regs. They're actually not that new anymore. Um, no. You know, people are still here trying to get their head around it. Um, and I do think there's, there is quite a lot of wool around the subject. So let's try and demystify it. So you touched on those kind of those titles or those duties like principal designer, principal contractor. Do you want to run us through what they are in your opinion? Yeah, so in my opinion, uh, the client, for example, these regs actually put more emphasis on the client. Um, so the client has a duty to obviously appoint um, competent roles, if you like, throughout the throughout this the project stage. So we've got the client here who are responsible for handing over all of the information with regards to um, a, a site, for example. So if we've been out and we've bought a new plot. Yeah, so for example, if a client goes out and uh, uh, acquires a new plot or, or a building, they are then a duty holder responsible for passing over any information that they have of that building down to other duty holders. Um, so everybody will go onto a principal contractor, for example. Principal contractors come under quite a lot of scrutiny in, in my opinion, and a lot of the roles and responsibilities always get passed on to principal contractor. Whereas now, with the new regulations, we see a lot of emphasis on the principal designer whose duty it is to collate, monitor, manage the pre-construction phase of a project before it then transfers over to principal contractor whose responsibility it is to manage health and safety throughout the job. I've always been a, a client in that process. I've never ever you know, worked for a construction industry or designing anything like that. So I've never seen it from that point of view, but I always thought that clients seem to feel like they're sitting pretty. Like you say, they put a lot of the emphasis on the contractors. And I think a lot of clients forget that uh, maybe not, maybe ultimately is not the right word, but they have a lot of responsibilities as a client. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, the client uh, does appoint a competent principal contractor so that they do have some of their 
uh, thinking done for them, if you like. Um, I would say that where a principal contractor is involved, it's partly their responsibility um, to let the client know where their duties lie and what they are responsible for. Um, I mean, in a construction world, you'll quite often see that a client is knowledgeable about the subject. However, if you go move on to more of a fit out, um, where, for example, your client is an office user and they're looking for, for a brand new office, quite a lot of the time they don't have the knowledge around the whole construction um, area, if you like, and therefore uh, principal contractors, the good ones, will always let the client know and make them aware of their responsibilities under the CDM regs. Mm. And and clients have got like the duty to make sure that the contractors, principal contractors, designers are carrying out their duties as well. So they can't just kind of pat it on and just sit pretty. Yeah, exactly. They need to ensure that, that they cover themselves as well, which is why often a principal uh, contractor will go through an extensive pre-qualification process. So that enables the client to ensure that the person that they are appointing um, is, it, you know, they have all of the relevant departments within their company, such as mm. health and safety, the design elements, um, and also the, the construction ability as well. Um, it's important, sorry, you get my words out, to highlight that a cheapest contractor is not always the best contractor uh, because you may, you may just end up getting uh, Joe Bloggs or a one-man band turning up saying on paper that they do all of this stuff, um, but then it is important that the client checks all of this out because they can become unstuck. Mm. I always find it fascinating, and it's probably more in house building um, world, but like how many subcontractors there are in the process. I don't know. At the Trafford, do you just kind of use your own in house builders or do you subcontract quite a lot? Because you know, you go to like, like my friend's a house builder and he's like self employed and his labourer is self employed and everyone's self employed. And there seems yeah. to be this perception that. The client passes the duties onto the designer, the contractor, then they pass it on to the subby, then the next subby, and the next subby. And it's like, I wonder if sometimes in construction people forget that the, the duty still lays there. You're just making it much more complicated. Yeah, exactly. All of the work that we do is subcontracted out. So, in essence, we are a project management company or the construction oh, okay. side of businesses. So, we'll have all of the right supervision. Um, such as a site manager, project manager, health and safety manager, um, but then each trade has a specific contractor. Uh, so, for example, uh, the concrete frame is done obviously by a concrete contractor, um, and our duty then, as the principal contractor, is to ensure that our contractor is competent, and that goes right the way up the chain then to the client whose responsibility it is to ensure that the principal contractor is competent so all in all it, it is it's like a knock-on chain like you mm. like you say yeah it must be and i don't know if you've ever worked in house building but it must be hard to track all of that stuff like the amount of subbies they have like and self-employed builders yeah. and it's and you just hear horror stories, don't you? But wait, from our point of view, where you think, really, you you do that, like, yeah. and and you just think, like, would it not be simpler for them to just employ 
all those people and deal with the HR side of things, which is what they're trying to avoid, the HR, the tax and and yeah. the, the so-called obligation of, of so-called red tape and stuff yeah. like that. Um, given the current climate, um, it, it would be hard to ensure that everybody that you took on, for example, to complete a project would, would eventually stay in work. Uh, which is why I do think, to be honest, it is better, from, from our opinion, to subcontract packages out. Um, yeah. And then each okay. trade has a specialism, um, and they're the expert, if you like, so you're kind of mm. relying on them. But I'm just going to flip this, because um, I do, I, I, I actually do quite like the CDM, which is quite a sad thing to confess. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the biggest change for me um, is just going back to that client role where the, there is a lot more emphasis on the client but say for example a house builder if it's a domestic build um, that's where the majority um, of these accidents were happening so a lot of the larger projects like this one that I'm on at the moment it comes under an F10 the HSE are notified of the, of the construction project. It's the small house building jobs that are the ones that are keeping our um, accident figures so high in Great Britain. The new CDM regs um, state that where there are two or more contractors appointed, uh, there has to be a principal designer appointed in writing. Um, so when there isn't a principal designer appointed in writing the client resumes that responsibility themselves so for example if you're doing a house renovation of a grand scale obviously and you've got a whole lineup of of contractors you need to know um what the safety arrangements are for all of those people um, and i do think that captures quite a lot of people it doesn't catch them out necessarily but it makes people such as your client start to think uh, right from the onset of how they're actually going to look after the people that are working on their projects mm. and I quite like that to be honest because you know it's the people on the ground that are not getting thought of whereas now obviously these regulations do touch everybody um, so yeah it's positive in my opinion mm. there's a couple of things you said there I want to I want to touch on but let, let's start with like so what is this the scope of cdm I, I remember going on some cdm training um and um and and the guy was like adamant that it applies to everything everything from you know one guy in a van building a brick wall at the front of my house to you building a massive block of flats for example um <clears throat> You know, is 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 that correct? He, you know, I, I had to assume he was correct. Uh, and when I kind of looked into the regs afterwards and kind of went through, I, I can see where he's getting that from. But where did it stop? Because you, you know, yeah. I, they're quite descriptive and kind of like the welfare provisions, for example. Um, yeah. You know, so it could easily, in my opinion, easily be misinterpreted by somebody such as a builder to think, oh, I've got to have a portaloo every time I build a brick wall or something like that. Yeah, yeah, which is, again, it needs to be reasonably practicable. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you hear, hear that word, those words a lot. I, I live by that word, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the CDM, Construction Design Management Regulations, cover everything that is a construction project. So thinking realistically about this, if one guy rocks up to build a brick wall, um, do we class that quite as construction it's a, a domestic bit of work um, 
and again, then we start touching on um, health and safety regs and where there are five or more uh, operatives, if you like. Um, but for example, if you've got a, um, a small office fit out, for example, um, if you've got a, a sparky, um, a joiner and a floor layer, that's three contractors already. Um, and where two or more apply, you need to appoint a, a principal designer. Um, but then you start getting into realms of, of no supplyable. So just to, to try not to boggle everybody's brains with this, basically, if you've got a construction project um, consisting of two or more contractors, class it as a construction project, rather than doing a full construction phase health and safety plan, which can quite often be onerous, 39, 40 pages long, um, the way that we've gone about it is to just do a smaller, cut down construction phase health and safety plan, just like a non notifiable plan. That covers you then throughout the whole of the, of the CDM reg. So CDM states any construction project has to have a construction phase health and safety plan. You don't need to throw absolutely everything in there, ground surveys, overhead cables, etc. Just keep it short keep it simple and just demonstrate that you have thought about the the health and safety and welfare of those few employers and that covers you and that's you know that's what you need to know really yeah would you say like for the for the smaller project obviously for some a much bigger project like you say a construction phase plan could be 40 pages long but for something small like that it's essentially i kind of interpret it as a as a glorified risk assessment really it's that risk assessment throughout the, the construction process yeah exactly you're right it's exactly the same principle and that's all the hse asked for just the construction phase plan for construction projects so if you you do your risk assessment it's just basically writing it down yeah so you you've not you've mentioned a few times there about like notifiable non-notifiable so what's notifiable and what's non-notifiable? What, what does that mean? So if your construction project um, exceeds the threshold to then become notifiable to the HSE, that is basically made up of 20 or more workers, 500 uh, run hours or 30 or more working days. Catches you out is the or. Um, so just check those out before deeming a project notifiable um, just check out the wording on the HSE website because we've been quite close to the threshold before um, if in doubt would you F10 it yes um, but, you know you, you can't have a construction project that does exceed um, the, the notifiable stage without then notifying the HSE because that is no good so what's F10 then? So the F10 is basically the form that is used on the online portal that notifies the HSE of the construction project. And within that F10, that is where you capture your duty holders. So you'd okay. always put your client, your principal designer, um, and your principal contractor. Um, any details relevant to the project uh, just gives you a little serial number and then you can track it. And it's important to keep that um, showcased on your site somewhere. Mm. 
So what were the you mentioned a few times about you know the new CDM regs or the brackets not so new regs. Not so, so new regs. Not so new regs. So when they came in in, in uh, what was it 2015? <laughs> is that right? In that. Sorry, could uh, you just say that again, James? Sorry. When they came in in 2015, didn't they? The last review. Is that right? Yeah. So, so what was what was kind of the biggest change there, and and what were the struggles for like a company like yourselves, and and um, obviously ongoing struggles, seeing as everyone says the new regs. Yeah. Okay. Um. Good question. Uh, the biggest change, obviously, saw the um, principal designer. So we no longer have CDM coordinator. CDM coordinators uh, used to come out to site give a little health and safety inspection um, and they were supposed to be responsible for collating information that went into the health and safety file. In all honesty, um, and I'm not tiring every CDM coordinator with the same brush, but in my um, experience of being a principal contractor throughout my career, uh, the, the, the uh, coordinator was, uh, you know, not always... Uh, there and it did always seem to fall down to the to the uh, principal contractor. I don't know. I'm going to get a, a rut full of abuse for that, but that is my <laughs> that is my experience. So, principal designers are there right from a pre-construction part of the project. Um, so they're there to try and, where possible, um, reduce risk right at a very design stage. Again, which is a really positive implement, I think. Um, and then they uh, keep gathering information throughout construction phase, attend the design team meeting, um, partly responsibilities with health and safety, um, and then again at the end of the project, um, collation of the health and safety file. So that's a, that's a plus. So one of the biggest challenges for us now is having the ex-CDM coordinator role um, slotting in so finding a competent principal designer uh, where there, there is like I say a, a makeup of a lot of ex-CDM coordinators who don't necessarily have the skills knowledge and the experience to act as that role to in order to be a principal designer that needs to be a mashup of skills from construction design um, and health and safety and it needs to be a person who actually appoints a design so it's not necessarily a designer, uh, but somebody who influences that whole design piece. Um, so where somebody doesn't hold all of those skills, it can be an organisation. And I think there's a lot of education required around that piece. Mm. I Personally, I, I've not had much insight on CDM, but I do quite like the. I, I quite like it from a point of view of being able to emphasise like the responsibilities on the client and stuff like that. And one of the biggest areas I find is a, is a problem is is the user groups of of like people who are going to be the end user of the building. So probably that's more so from from a housing point of view. But where where in my experience we start building a block of flats for you know normal able-bodied people and then halfway through we decide oh we're going to change that to a supported living kind of block of flats or something which completely changes the concept for a designer um is that is that something you ever come across it seems quite common for me it seems to be happening quite a lot yeah yeah completely um and again i do i i I might get lynched for this again but designers (laughs) need to 
know that there needs to be a design freeze on projects because if you go ahead and start changing things last minute um, there's more than just the design to consider which is I'm sure where you're coming from from a health and safety point of view obviously you need to go right the way back to everything or even to to an end user um, even so much as accessing light fittings for example and all of that needs to be considered right the way from that stage so it's not just as simple as coming in and changing everything anymore <laughs> mm. it must be hard for designers though like there's so much to to consider like if you just look at the building regs even from a novice point of view there's so much there and i was invited into a design meeting from a fire point of view so i was asked to go in look at the fire uh, strategy drawings and stuff like that and one of the first things we kind of spotted that we've created this amazing part M, so a wheelchair user flat on the second floor of a block of flats. And so, well, that's that's really nice, but how does that person get out in the event yeah. of a fire? Like, do we have a, a, a do we have a evacuation lift? No, we don't need the evacuation lift. The building's not over 30 meters or whatever it was. Um, okay. But, but you've got a wheelchair user on the second floor and and this architect designer whatever they were just just couldn't get it in their head and then they kept going oh it's stay put mate and i was like yeah i know that i know what stay put means but they still need to evacuate and we had quite a long conversation before we finally got round to the point where this principal designer's kind of face went white and eyes rolled back because they realized oh shit you know, and to me that was very obvious because I'd come in as a fresh eyes point of view, but was only focusing on one thing. It must be extremely hard for a designer to yeah. focus on everything where construction is so dynamic, like it just changes yeah. all the time, doesn't it? It must be really hard from a designer point of view. Yeah, and this is exactly why it's so important to have these meetings um, throughout the mobilisation part of the project. So right even before the designs um, are... Uh, accepted and frozen that there needs to be a mixture of, of people from within an organization so like I say construction expertise always for the logistics planning of it design obviously uh, they've got a vision in their mind and they know how it wants to look uh, but also it's, it's vital that you get your health and safety advisor or your health and safety manager on board with all of these pre-construction and design meetings um, so that they can have additional input into fire strategies um, operationally, you know, health and safety from pre-con to construction right the way through to end user. Um, there, there are quite a lot of good design risk registers and design risk assessments available for use. Um, so I'm more than happy to share some of those with you if, if anybody does find that useful so that we know what, what to look out for and kind of do it as a bit of a lessons learned on a project because more than likely we're all struggling with the same issues. Mm, definitely. I Personally, I find construction a pain in the ass, And, <laughs> and, and I, from, from a non-construction point of view, um, I do wonder whether it has got so much further to go from, especially from a fire point of view, before we really start actually seeing some serious changes. Like it, I find it so difficult. The whole process is, you know, I, I, and another thing, I'd never heard of employees agents till a, few, a couple of years ago. Um, an employees agent said, do you use them? Do you, do you want to explain what they are? Cause to me, 
that they were a godsend. Like, literally, they were just going through everything with a fine tooth comb. And I do think that if we didn't have those people there, um, it, we would have been up shit creek without a paddle. And but but they were still missing stuff so what kind of role do they do like for, for us it's slightly different because we are client and contractor oh, okay. uh, where we where we use um external contractors uh, we would have an employees or client agent um so that that person understands the full client brief and then they're able to then attend progress meetings with the contractor one to check progress, two obviously to advise, um, and three, I guess it's just additional information uh, relaying, you know, so if there's a delay on site or they're ahead of program, we're never the case in construction. Uh, but <laughs> that person is like the go-to between um, obviously the, the, the main client, if you like, and the contractor. Um, previously, I've worked like quite closely with employees' agents um, and kind of, they are a feedback process, so they attend all the meetings, they take away information or or give information to that contractor during that meeting. Um, and yeah, they should understand the scheme, the design um, and any risks uh, from a health and safety point of view um, or commercial aspect, if you like, and be that, be that person who is acting as client. Mm. I do, I do. They, I mean, they were an absolute godsend. The ones like the the few that I've actually dealt with, but I, I did think that all they actually did was just really spend a lot of time going through every single piece of paper, which is a good thing. But yeah. essentially, it could a client a client could do that themselves, I suppose, couldn't they? Yeah, I get that. That's what I'm going back to my point. So, where it's a construction project, um, you know, the client may understand all of that and what what their responsibilities are but say for example like say the office fit out world um where you get a complaint a, a client that just wants a new office they'll more than likely employ somebody to take to do that for them um, who has got the knowledge in that area so that they know that everything's being done safely and they are adhering to legislation so in a way then that they're kind of there to to make the what am I trying to say? Otherwise, if they weren't there or services similar to that weren't there, customers and clients, everyone would have to have a quite a good knowledge of CDM regs, which is just yeah. not feasible, is it? So No, I mean, do, do you know what? The, the, there's still loads of people out there who aren't knowledgeable about CDM regs. Um, and it's important for those, the good, you know, health and safety people on sites that do understand it to just try and transfer some of their knowledge and skills um, so it's good practice to sit down with designers or sit down with your project managers or anybody operationally directors right the way through to the to the contractors on site and just let them know what their duties are under CDM they don't need to know the whole spiel uh, but mm -hmm. if you can try and do like a bit of a bespoke workshop for these people and keep it interactive, we've found that people are getting quite a lot out of this. Mm. I'm going to maybe put you on the spot here. Depends what your answer is, right? <laughs> but from, from a fire risk assessor point of view, right, a health and safety file is like gold dust. 
if we've got them, they'll have a fire strategy in them, especially for the newer, bigger buildings. And if you've got that, it just makes your job so much easier. So much easier. Yeah. Finding them and actually getting them is like yeah. a needle in a haystack. Yeah. A haystack of needles, probably. <laughs> it, it's unbelievable. They're, it's just, they're so rare. So, one... From your point of view, could you explain to the listeners kind of what that is? But number two, to put you on the spot, from your yeah. point of view, why is it so hard for me as a client to get a health and safety file out of my contractors, for example? Uh-huh. Yeah, so the, the health and safety file um, forms part of the operation maintenance manual, uh, the O&M file. Uh, which contains a long list of everything. So how everything is, you know, like paint colours, how to use the dishwasher, for example. So it gets caught up in a big, massive, long folder, usually, of GAs, um, should have, like, the design risk assessment and everything in there. But when you get to the health and safety files, it should tell you um, what risks there are on a project. So, for example, if you're working on a building that has been built pre-2000 um, and it has asbestos in it for example your asbestos surveys should be in there with your register to tell people where the asbestos is um, with obviously how to manage it I think that the, the two should be made a completely separate thing if I'm honest um, because you know having the, the operations and maintenance manual is one thing um, but then the health and safety file is so important when you're the client and you go on to then sell that building or say if it's a bank for example and you sell off and you and you pass it on to a new business that is your duty to ensure that the, the next person coming along has access to that information and obviously when it gets lost uh, I've seen it before where there's there's 30 odd files and nobody knows where the asbestos survey is um, so what they'll do then, the principal contractor will just come along and advise the client, rather than looking through the file, uh, they'll just say, you need an asbestos survey for this building. And then the mm. client ends up forking out 5K, for example, for a full R&D survey. Little did they know that they've already got one in the file. Mm. Um, so yeah, they are, they're, the, they're the bane of some people's lives. Uh, we're exploring things slightly differently here um, so obviously once this building is completed um, it'll be transformed into obviously resi build um, so we're going to have all home owners moving into this building so we want to try and make that journey as easy and as successful as possible for them um, and I just want them to have access to one yeah this is how your dishwasher or your washing machine works but oh did you know uh, there's a risk over here and keep them really easy so whether everybody goes electronic with this process and i know there are a lot of good things happening in the world of construction whereby the use of bim 360 for example mm. you're actually getting modular um buildings and it's shown or it can be shown where the asbestos is so for me that is obviously the way that that the world is going uh, but then obviously we do still need to consider some of the the older generation that prefer things on pen and paper so <laughs> it's uh, it's one of them really um it's it, yeah it's, uh, 
So just kind of like the sheer size of it then you think like the sheer yeah. complexity which is which is inherent in a big build you can't avoid that but the sheer size of an uh, amount of information that is in there just inherently yeah. makes it difficult to manage yeah keep yeah. it simple stupid that is one <laughs> of the key things to, to consider here uh, but often contractors will just bundle you everything all of the safety data sheets absolutely everything um, mm. and unless you've got a dedicated person working on those files you quite often do end up with a lot of crap in there that quite honestly nobody needs nobody uses and then like i say it just gets stored in a dusty old cupboard somewhere and then you come to hand over your building at the end of a lease or end of a tenancy and and uh, like i say half of it's already in there but nobody can be bothered going through it so mm-hmm. we just get a whole new survey done for absolutely everything it's a bit of a shame and a bit of a waste really but at least it keeps surveyors in good good stead <laughs> yeah it gives them a job um oh, i'm conscious that your phone's gonna die no it's fine it's fine is it, uh, I've got one last question that probably might put you on the spot again. I yeah. find it quite difficult to get as-built drawings. Is that, is that a hard process to keep from you know, design stage drawings? Easy. I can get yeah. them all day long. But getting that little stamp on the bottom right corner or something like that says as-built, yeah. it seems to be very difficult from my point of view. Is it is it hard to keep track of changes from design through to the end? Or is oh, Maybe I'm just employing really bad contractors or... <laughs> uh, again, you know, it depends on the systems that you've got within within an organisation. Everybody varies and, and every contractor differs. Um, it depends, again, on resource. If you've got somebody kind of there to guide contractors through a process, then, then you're, you're okay. Um, uh. But obviously, if you haven't got that and you are solely relying on contractors who don't understand like the electronic side of the business or systems um you are yeah inevitably going to suffer but i do think it's absolutely vital from a construction point of view quality control more than anything and mm. um, that once you have a drawing uh, there is a there is a document control process for that otherwise what we'll see here is uh, this guy over here building this block work wall or putting in the partitioning if he's building it to two or three revs down the line, he's going to end up having to rip it all out if that's been revised. Mm. Um, or, you know, if it's not right and they've discovered some asbestos, thinking from a health and safety point of view, and then that's moved. Um, he's then got a drill stud work or whatever into a floor containing asbestos because he's not got the message. Um, that's where, obviously, the health and safety and the design communication needs to come into play. Mm. Is that the kind of role of like a clerk of works? Is that the kind of thing a clerk of works would do? I hear quite a lot about, oh, we used to have this with a clerk of works. You never have that when we used to have clerk of works. Like, clerk of works. Oh, that's two clerk of works, actually. Are we a bit old school? Well, it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm quite new to construction, if I'm honest, okay. but the way people talk about it, it sounds like yeah, it was a yeah, role we used to have everywhere, yeah. and now yeah. it's gone. Quality control. Um, so... Yeah, we, we'll have like an inspection and test plan, for example. So, um, I don't know, once your, your partitioning goes in, um, say if you need to put a patress on a wall, the clerk will work, if you like, or your quality controller um, will just come, take images of that at that whole point, um, and then safely 
file that away if they're an old school park away <laughs> or upload it to your quality control app um, which is the way the industry's moving so then if you you get to the fit out stage the finishing trades will then come in if there's any issues for example a shelf comes away from a wall rather than having to rip out every single wall in every single apartment you can just look at your your inspection and test plan and see oh yeah there was a patches installed it's just a one-off um, mm. so that's that kind of thing if you like so yeah they need to keep up to date with design changes definitely because if anything does change um, obviously they're the first that need to know about it mm. and and then just finally then like i, I suppose we've been we've kind of talked a lot about the design point of view and the physical build and stuff like that from from a client point of view but cdm actually also covers the builders and the 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 staff doing the work as well like from a welfare and a health and safety point of view there's quite quite in depth there isn't it yeah yeah completely and it can be quite overwhelming for contractors particularly um so they obviously need to know what what their side of, of the bargain is and they need support in with that um, most companies now you'll see do have their own well every company should have access to professional health and safety advice for those smaller companies um, often they'll be using like portals and stuff online so again I'd urge any health and safety managers of the client or principal contractor uh, to just take the time to to understand where that uh, professional health and safety advice is coming from, if you like. Mm. And if it is just online and they haven't got a, a dedicated advisor, um, maybe just include them in some of the workshops or, you know, just spend a little bit of time with them. Um, I was at a, a thing the other day with um, the CITB, uh, which was actually focusing on small businesses um, and where, where the, the risks are for those people um, and hopefully coming soon to the industry we might have a little bit of a go-to guide um, so it's basically from starting up your own business from scratch and um, say if you, you, you're a one-man band uh, expanding to five or six people what you need to do for um, to ensure compliance to the CDM regs but also um, other legal sides of it and commercially as well so everything from like CIS insurance um, and then making sure that you're covered on a health and safety side of things mm, well that'd be good, good to see yeah really good mm. yeah I'll keep you keep you in the loop about that because it's uh, that'd be quite revolutionary I think to yeah. smaller people because at the moment we're not seeing very many new people starting up businesses and I do think it's partly to do with how suffocated they feel by health and safety and the mm. sheer daunting you know the sheer worry of them doing something wrong and how liable they then are under cdm regs okay so <clears throat> well this will be like third time lucky i think so <laughs> obviously you're not wearing a hard hat and uh and safety glasses and a, and a big thick coat anymore and you're not the top of a a construction site so that was because your battery ran out but we we appreciate uh, you putting that effort in and trying and getting that amazing background so thank you very much no worries we had a few technical difficulties but we're yeah. back <laughs> and then round two uh you weren't very well so i'm glad to hear you're feeling better Thanks. and now round three nearly got kicked out of your meeting room now you're in a fire exit <laughs> it's yeah. always entertaining excuse the back door yeah <laughs> oh, it's real. 
So if anybody's watching it on YouTube, that that's why we have uh, both got changed. We didn't just randomly go and get changed <laughs> through the podcast. Although we were talking about CDM for that long that uh, we've ended up like a, a year later, change of clothes, change of scenery. Yeah. But we're finally back to tell the tale. And I wonder if we would have the same conversation again, would we say the same things? That would be interesting. Um, okay, so we were, we were, the frustrating thing is we were like right at the end and I kept thinking, oh, your battery, your battery's going to die. So I was, yeah, yeah. I was purposely bring it to an end. But my last kind of question to you was, if, um, if listeners can kind of take away one thing from your opinion to kind of focus on that would really kind of drastically improve their their construction design management compliance or even just the general risk management of construction um you know in your opinion or your advice what what would that be yeah so i was gonna end by saying that um basically in, in construction and under the cdm regs we basically have one goal well surely we have one goal across the whole of health and safety um, and that is for everybody to go home safely. So if that means that we need to share lessons learned, for example, between competitors, uh, we're slightly different, we don't have competitors here, but if the big tier one contractors shared what they knew went wrong on projects, say for example, on a design phase, which then ended up turning into an accident with just another one of their competitors, then that story could then be turned into something positive through that lessons learned. So I just say to people to, to keep talking about it. Um, and although it's never a nice thing to talk about what went wrong, it could actually make a difference to somebody else. So I would encourage that and say to people to just take one thing at least from this. Mm. How much of a challenge is that like with, with like competition? so much competition in it, isn't there? And is 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 competition even a thing and in, in, uh, from from that perspective do you think is that why people are not communicating this stuff it, it, well in our world it shouldn't be but unfortunately we are still going to have that um that preconception of uh, accidents incidents and stuff like that being a bad thing and nobody wants to tell people about bad stuff that's happened uh, particularly in large-scale organizations but sometimes it's going to be the only thing that makes us better and helps us improve um, and gets people to understand which is what it's all about surely yeah i think there's something to take away with that actually like if you if you look at like um the air travel industry like if there's any kind of incident in flight or anything like that then that's communicated with with everybody every, every it's visible for everybody to see and I, I i don't i don't know firsthand but i'm sure that's through some kind of open system but i could be wrong um but but yeah like they they're all learning together so you know it doesn't matter whether it's heathrow or or yeah, new york airport yeah. or whatever that they, they exactly. can see they um, guys do that but not, that wouldn't happen in construction obviously if you're your name appeared um, for a negative reason, say in the press or HSE, um, obviously that can be really damaging for, mm. for a company's reputation, which is why obviously people are not going to want to share stories like that publicly. Um, but unfortunately, it is one of the only ways around this that, that I can see. Yeah. Do you think it would take... it? Like yeah, it would probably it would probably be detriment to the to the brand in the initial maybe months or years even of, of doing it but then eventually 
it won't be detrimental to, to the brand because hopefully it would have fixed any of the issues that we yeah. that we deal with. Well, you'd like to think so. Yeah. Do you think it'd take one contract company, maybe like the, the Trafford, for example, leading the way? Yeah, definitely. Let's say, well, this is what we did wrong, learned from our mistakes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think it is. It is actually all about that. I think if you, it, so you don't want to go out speaking to other contractors, but at least if you've got multiple sites in construction, then it's about breaking down those barriers. So one project manager might have had something happen on his site, um, and always, forever in construction, people have held on to things like that closely to the chest because. They don't want their peers to know what's gone wrong on their site. But what mm. which we are actually trying to encourage it to Trafford is people talking about those. So one project manager sitting down with another project manager and telling him about an incident that's happened on his site just so that he's giving him the heads up so that that doesn't happen on, on the next site. Because mm. at the end of the day, like I say, in health and safety, it's not about hiding things and keeping things close to your chest. It's about using those negatives and turning it into a positive by making it a lesson learned so everyone knows about it and then it stops it from happening again mm. yeah i was thinking about kind of what what i was when i when i originally posed the question when you were covered in ppe um <laughs> what what i was going to probably say was like communication i found that communication within that kind of especially the design stage um, was really important but then thinking about it in the time that we've we've had to come back to this I, I think now from my point of view as primarily being the client in the process is is one thing that client can do and correct me if, or, or, or it'd be interesting to see what you think but be real clear on who the end user is like the purpose group of of that build I find in my experience you know we we quite quickly jump on one kind of purpose group be it I can't remember the number but like yeah. you know the normal person kind of for lack of a better phrase purpose group and then halfway through we kind of change it to some maybe a supported living or something like that uh, and we're like well hang on a minute that's completely changed the potential implications of that have completely changed to how we might design the building um, yeah. so from a client point of view I think the most important thing is be clear on the end user and be consistent with that. And then maybe the communication piece comes in. If you want to change it, then that's fine. But be clear and communicate that out and be willing to absorb maybe the costs or whatever. But is that, a, is that an issue with you? Like, do you, do you ever come across that? Maybe it's maybe not very big in the traffic, but like, do you ever experience clients kind of changing their mind halfway through? <laughs> yes, it is the story of what we do. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's all about getting the client and the client's design team, for example, to sit down right at an early stage of a project and do workshops with them. So this exact conversation that you and I are having, there's no reason why we can't bespoke this type of learning into a workshop for those clients and for those designers. Um, and get them to then understand the complications on end users. Um, and as soon as they understand it, then the, the thought process is there. And at least it might not change things overnight, but at least it's on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd, for me, I think that's a huge thing, is that kind of changing of purpose groups halfway through just creates so much complications. Oh, yeah, completely. You know, you, you start by building maybe a general need to block of flats and then eventually you're flipping it to nearly a res care and it's like, yeah. oh, hang on a minute. This completely yeah. changes the game. 
Uh-huh. No, I think everybody would agree that that is a consistent struggle. Mm. Interesting. I, uh, I can't really think of what, I mean, to be honest, I could go on all day talking about construction <laughs> and, and how many in, things... In the blip of time between these two videos, this is what we've been talking about, really, listeners. We've just had a really long conversation about CDM. <laughs> yeah. And just we're just giving you the greatest tips. That's it. That's it. I genuinely could. Like, the frustrating thing is we have these conversations, and I think with it being such a, a long gap between when we initially did this and then mm-hmm. coming back, more I've been thinking about it more, so I'm thinking, oh, I should have... I always do it. I think, oh, I should have said that. That would have been a great conversation. The catch now oh, is I've actually yeah. got opportunity to put those questions across, but then it'll end up being a four-hour podcast instead yeah. of yeah. just a one. We don't want to do that. Hey, we're all actually intrigued to know, just off topic, you had a, a uh, holiday in between these recordings, did you not? Uh, did it, was it between these? Yes, yeah, it was. It was, yeah. It was, was that it? long ago. Yeah. No. It was when my battery died. We couldn't do that anything before. on holiday. Yes, I went on my honeymoon. I can't believe that was before my honeymoon. Oh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, we got married a long time ago. We got married in January. Um, but, but yeah, we went to Australia. Went on a cruise in Australia, which was amazing. Absolutely amazing. I would definitely recommend anyone to go. It's a completely different world. I don't think I would relocate out of there. I don't think I would move out of there. No. But I would definitely go on holiday again. It's not, uh, it's not fast-paced enough out there, is it? Do you know what? That is exactly it. That is, it, that is in a nutshell. I can't believe you said that. Like in a nutshell, that is exactly it. It. We went to. Um, I think they call it Grand Central Station, but in, in Sydney, obviously. Yeah. And and it's like the the St Pancras and Kings Cross of Australia, Sydney. And we went there probably just after rush hour. It was dead, and everyone's just like <laughs> Sunday stroll, like chilling oh, out, chilling out, yeah. just. Uh, and, and I'm, they're, and they're I'm, just complaining about how fast-paced everything is over here, but they were complaining about how non-fast-paced it is out there. Exactly. I missed it. And actually, <laughs> I find nothing more frustrating than being stuck behind a slow walker. I'm naturally quite a fast walker anyway. And that's why I love London. Like, I don't live in London, but when I go to London, I love it. Everyone walks so fast, and I'm like, yes, this is my kind of walk. <laughs> You get to Australia and everyone's like, whoa, real slow. And, yeah, and it, it is a lovely p- pace. Like, I was talking to a friend of mine who's like an, a proper northerner. like, and, and he was quite like, oh, it sounds amazing. Because it's stereotypical that northerners are much more slower pace. Right, yeah. Stereotypical. <laughs> it's not, it's not, not my opinion. Well, I don't know. It might be. But he was like the stereotypical northerner. He was like, oh, it sounds amazing. And I was like, nah. When I got back to, we landed in London and got into the airport and everyone just started running practically it was just like the minute we landed we're in england we have to be fast paced and i was like yeah ah welcome uh, home this is back. lovely <laughs> yeah i do that is exactly it it was much more chill kind of slow pace and and that's not a negative it sounds like i'm being negative but you know no. that some people would love that that kind of yeah. slow but personally um i, I kind of i love to live life in sixth gear which is yeah. probably yeah. a bad so you yeah. must have been then to say that yeah. you must have been. Yeah, 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 exactly. Same thing. We were thinking about relocating out there, but it's just not. Uh, it's not. It, it's just not. It's gorgeous to visit as a holiday. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I'd like to keep it as a holiday destination and stay fast-paced too. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. I loved it, but yeah. I was also fascinated with, like, safety on the cruise ship. I was quite intrigued by that. It was, um... Now you're getting too sad. I thought you were rebranding safety. I am. I am trying to. I was wearing a cap backwards while I was thinking about it, so it's all right. Uh, but no, I did think it was fascinating and it reminded me, we had a guy that works in a kind of maritime industry on the podcast and reminded me about what he was saying and stuff and I just thought, wow, what a complex industry mm-hmm. that must be to kind of work in. Like, for example, they've got detections everywhere for fire safety, but they've got no alarm. And when that first said, when they first said oh, there won't be an alarm that go off, I was like, what? But it's, you imagine if an alarm went off and everyone panicked on a ship, you got nowhere to go on a cruise ship. Yeah. So it made sense. And I just thought, oh, yeah. that's interesting. Oh, yeah. I can't believe that was in between this time. Yes, it was. Jesus, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> it was a long <laughs> while ago. The the, uh, the build has changed quite a bit since then as well. We topped out um, last Friday, actually. So thank you very much, Rachel, for coming back no. on. How do you feel about it? Thanks for your patience. No, it's and, uh, fine. We got there in the end, didn't we? And thank you for putting so much effort in to get up to the top or second to top floor of that building. <laughs> was it quite tall? I remember you saying it was a yeah, tall building. Yeah, 11 stories. Yeah. <laughs> and what story were you on? Uh, I think it was on 10 at the time because it was raining, wasn't it? I think. Yes, that was like, it, yeah. Well, it always rains in Manchester, but... <laughs> so, uh, thank you for going to the 10th story of your building. It was... Okay, guys, I hope you found that useful. As you spotted, the technical difficulties got the better of us and Rachel's phone battery cut off. So, unfortunately, we had to re-record the end of the podcast. Well, not re-record. We never got a chance to record it, but record the podcast um, at a later date, the end of the podcast at a later date. So, I hope you found that useful. Rachel's really kind of delved in deep to the CDM regulations. I think we might do some more around CDM. There is a lot to discuss there, or at least some more around construction with Rachel as well. There's so much to discuss, and it is a big part of every, a lot of people's business, whether it's just a one-off project or it's something we deal with every day. So, I think there's some value in us kind of going in depth with each kind of subject of CDM and construction and the process and risk of construction. So keep posted if you enjoyed this. If you listen on YouTube or watching on YouTube, don't forget to hit subscribe and the bell so you never miss another episode. If you listen on any of the podcast platform, please hit subscribe or like or follow or favor or whatever it is on the app that you use. Um, if you are listening on iTunes, don't forget to give us a rate and review. We would love if you could do that. It just helps us get out to other people, helps us help other people like you. So talking to helping other people also we would love it if you could share this podcast please share it let everybody know that it's the best health and safety podcast out there i'm not looking at the camera i've just realized apologies for you guys on youtube i was looking at the the podcast stuff over here anyway that'll do for this episode i'll catch you next week safe everyone you're looking for something a little bit different for your next digital or physical conference business event safety event how about 
health and safety's first and only YouTuber. Go to www.rebrandingsafety to get rebranding safety at your next event. Or email me at james at rebrandingsafety.com. Catch you later. Safe.